The hardest thing about being an artist is returning to being a kid and letting yourself play. Because if you don't play, you're not really being, you're not letting that creativity breathe. You're not, you know, I think that's where a lot of original ideas come from. Welcome to the Final Free Bowl, a platform dedicated to the discussion and exploration of art and the creative process. I'm the host and creator, Ernest, and this is the first part of a two-part conversation with the amazing Braden Harris. Braden is an artist from the US who uses art to explore the concept of humanity. Through the use of mixed media, she creates images, most notably of werewolves or dog-headed people, who seem to be contained within unseen boxes. I had a great time talking to Phelan today. I hope you had a I hope you have I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. So I'm gonna start where I start with everybody, which is just tell us a bit about yourself and how you became an artist. A little bit about myself. Um I always hate this question. Uh I have a lot of interests. Um kind of kind of very diverse. Uh so I grew up in Mississippi. Um, spent pretty much my entire life there, which as an artist, as a creative, always has a lot of, either a lot of baggage or a lot of connotations that come with it. Mississippi is known for not, obviously not a whole lot of like world changing, life shattering things, but like, you know, it's the birthplace of things like the blues and you've got William Faulkner and Eudora Welty and stuff like that. And that's, as far as the arts goes, what people think of. So um, growing up in Mississippi uh, taught me to sort of value my own personal creative process um, and influence, obviously, a lot of things that I'm interested in. You know, it's it's very rural. It's very green. Um, so I've always been really into nature. Uh, so I've spent my entire life. I don't really remember a time when I wasn't identified as an artist in some way like as a kid I was always doing watercolors um it was just sort of just like a way of life um I was always in art programs I was that kid um I was always working on something or learning how to do something so like if I wasn't drawing or painting I was probably playing with um oven baked clay and was making little things out of tinfoil and just kind of always fidgeting, kind of always um, making a mess somewhere in the house. God bless my parents. You know, I, I, there was a brief moment where I wasn't completely sure that I wanted to be an artist professionally. I, everybody has that moment. Mine came when I was in like seventh grade. Um, I got that out of the way really quickly. I had a wonderful high school art teacher named Denny St. John who was. A lot of a lot of students did not like her because she's she was difficult. She asked a lot of high school students. Um, and so she asked a lot of me, but I actually really enjoyed the challenge. And I liked that she noticed she noticed that I took it seriously. She noticed that I cared. Um, and I think she saw um, something worthwhile in me, which as a young person is always a huge deal to have anybody, yeah. a teacher or parent friends say look at you and be like oh yeah no no you've got this spark you can do this but it always came with the caveat of you know you have the spark you have the ability um you have but you have to work on it you have to work for it you have to want this and she made that very clear to me and being in a small school a small town and stuff like that like 
I didn't, it always felt like I didn't have a lot of competition artistically. It was always sort of like, oh, you're the art kid in class. You know, it was like graduating class of 75 kids. So it's like <laughs> not a whole lot of diversity. So having somebody show up in my life and basically say, you know, you're good. You're, you're technically good. But if you really want this, you've got to put your back into it. You know, you've got to do things you don't like. You've got to do projects you don't enjoy because you're not done yet. You have a lot to learn. Um, and as a self-possessed, uh, very stubborn uh, kid, that was always so annoying to me and, you know, really pushed my buttons. But I, I think that's kind of what made me stick with it. It was like, oh, you want to you want to push me? You want to try to tell me what to do? Well, I'm going to push back a little bit and I'm going to see if I can actually do this and prove you wrong. Ha ha. I can I can pull this off. Which is always just a terrible thing to do to yourself, but it's a way of life at this point. Um, so yeah, I, I started taking it seriously in high school, and it really has been my identity ever since, which is a scary thing to uh, conflate your work with who you are as a person, hmm. but it's kind of inevitable when um, when your work is already so personal, you know, like your your boundaries have to be with your time rather than your content or, you know, stuff like that. Because especially as a creative, you know, you're always absorbing things, you're always processing things. So yeah, I, I started, I think I started to take it really seriously probably junior year of high school. And I had to decide uh, if I wanted to pursue a BFA, uh, which naturally my dad was very nervous about that. Um, he was like, don't you want to maybe look at a business degree first or something like that? And I was like, look, I get where you're coming from, but no, I want to, if I'm going to do this, I have to do, I have to be all in. I have to be really committed. So yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of picked my path, I guess, early in life and I, I haven't somehow I haven't deviated from it yet. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> so that's really interesting. There's a lot of things that I'm like, this is really fascinating. Like especially when you said about like it's become your identity ever since. And I think that's kind of interesting to me because I have um, a lot of good art friends who are very similar where it's not like they just do art. It's like they are, they're, they're not able to separate themselves from the art because it's just who they are. It's just like all they've ever known is all they've ever done is all they ever probably will do because, you know, it's hard for them to to kind of be like, oh, I'm an artist without kind of being like, this is me because their work is also personal. And I'm kind of, I'm curious, this is probably a question for a lot later, but these never go in order, so I'm going to ask you now. Um, but like, do you ever worry or do you ever consider the fact that people might approach your work looking at the, like, well, I guess, do you want people to approach your work looking at the artist or the imagery? Because I feel like they can sometimes be two separate things. That is a very good question, actually. Especially with, with the werewolf series and work like that, mm. stuff that is already very personal. I think I am pretty much at peace with the idea of people conflating the work with me because it is rather representative of deep personal examination and experience. And so I I'm okay with the conflation of the two because I like the idea of it sparking conversation that is meaningful mm. and like, like, why on earth do you feel this way? Or what on earth brought you to, you know, draw something so weird? And I think a little bit of that 
you know, a little bit of that shock value that comes with realizing that somebody else has got this deeply personal, difficult, and not necessarily comfortable uh, experience behind the work is, you know, really essential to experiencing the work at all and understanding it. So yeah, I'm I'm really okay with being with being so obviously a part of my work um because i like the experiences that have created it are painful or uncomfortable not fun but i think it's incredibly vital as a society and as a community you know on whatever scale you want to apply it to it's incredibly vital to be able to talk about things like that to be able to express things like grief and anger and fear because those are uncomfortable, you know? Um, I could compare it to uh, how modern society handles death. Um, You know, we we putty up the face of the the dearly departed, put them in a really expensive casket that we'll never see again, uh, cover it with flowers and have all this fanfare and stuff like that, but we don't, um, there's not a whole lot of involvement in the ceremony of death. And so I think I think that's a really decent example of how we as a modern society handle difficult emotions and things that are really uncomfortable. Um, and it's not to say that we should be just like spouting those difficult things all the time. Mm-hmm. There's a time and a place. Um, and honestly, I'd really like to see that time and place be the gallery, mm-hmm. any gallery, like however big, however important, a museum, whatever, it doesn't matter. because art is such a wonderful distillation of the human experience that anybody can consume and uh, it can be life-changing it can alter everything you think uh, if given the chance so yeah so I'm I'm fine with being mixed up in that imagery (laughs) and if people want to separate the artist from it that's fine too because I think art needs to good art (laughs) needs to be able to stand on its own feet um, it shouldn't need me, but if it has me, that's fine. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really good answer. That's a really good answer, actually. But I'm kind of curious. Like, do you think that? I'm sorry, these are not even on the list. I do apologize. But do you think that fine. <laughs> art can be too personal? I don't think art can be too personal. I think people can conflate the idea of being brutally vulnerable with being honest but you know just like you can be brutally honest with somebody really you're being a jerk Mm. there's a level of sensitivity that comes with communication in all forms be it you know a conversation be it visual artwork be it music um that sensitivity to the content you're handing somebody is integral to effectively communicating so i have a really good example um, actually, as far as being too personal, but not in a constructive way. So for a little while before I started doing my own personal art full time, more or less, um, I did several commissions um, via a website called Upwork. Super useful for freelancers, um, especially if you're young, you don't know what you're doing, but you know you can draw and you can draw anything. So you offer people 25 bucks to draw them a picture of their cat or a logo or anything like that. So this guy 
wanted um, he wanted digital illustrations for a poetry book he was doing. And I was like, that's right up my alley. I love poetry and I love illustrations that go in books. This is perfect. So I took it on and, you know, first time author, first time having his work published in any way. And uh, I, I learned about a terrible thing called scope creep, um, which is, is something that I don't remember being mentioned in um, any of my preparatory classes for graduation. Like they, that word did not get thrown around, but it happens a lot. And it's really easy to let a client take advantage of your time. And unfortunately, that's what I took away from this experience. On top of this, uh, this particular writer, he wanted to delve into really dark subject matter. So, you know, things like suicide and self-harm and, um, you know, relationship abuse, things like that, that are all incredibly valid, incredibly important subjects to talk about and have in the public sphere um, because everybody experiences it to some degree. Um, you know, nobody has a clean slate. It might look like you do. So yeah. I took what he was giving me content-wise and I was like, okay, no, this is valid. It's one of my first illustration clients. You know, I was, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew how to draw. That was it. Um, I was like, so I was very optimistic. I was like, I can work with this. You know, we'll have conversations about it. We'll add some nuance to it. We'll, you know, make something good with what we have. Um, and he was asking me to draw very graphic images and, you know, things like somebody you know, holding a gun and just looking at it, con literally contemplating suicide. And it was it was jarring at first, but I wasn't thrown off by it. It was like, no, this this doesn't not deserve visuals. Like this is a really hard subject matter that I'm not afraid to explore. Like this is this could be a really good thing, even though it's it's hard and it's ugly. But it got to a point where he, I think he I think he basically wanted an illustration of I think it was just an abusive relationship. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I don't, I just like suddenly realized I don't feel good about this because she was asking me to present um, this really difficult subject matter with no sensitivity. I got to a point where I was reading it. I was reading his poetry and I was synthesizing the image to go along with it. And I kept thinking to myself, what is he doing with this? Like, what what is the point of presenting this really difficult content without nuance, without any um, no personal background, no nothing? There's nothing to connect with, other than this is this is universally difficult and uncomfortable. And maybe for some people that's enough, but for me personally, if you are presenting something that has a lot of shock value. And you're not actually exploring any deeper themes and you're not you're not you don't have a process to what you're creating. It kind of comes across as just I want to freak people out. Hmm. You know, if you're going to delve into difficult themes out loud and share them with people, there has to be. I don't want to I don't want to say there has to be a point because it's a really blunt way of putting it, but there has to be an avenue. There has to be. Um, a direction of flow that you want to guide people towards because when you create work like that, you're inviting people into your world, essentially. Yeah. You know, it's it's very personal. And if you're just 
word vomiting your diary out there for people to to read and examine. I don't know about you, but my diaries are chaos and there's there's not a lot to glean from it. And I think there's a certain degree of guidance and refinement that is necessary for difficult subjects to be um, really shared in a community of art, art loving people or artists or whatever. You know, it's like having a theme to a quilt. Like, you know, <laughs> as somebody who's really intimidated by quilt projects, um, it really helps to have a pattern. It helps to have organization to, you know, whatever diverse palette you're trying to apply to this thing. So, so yeah, you can't be too personal, but you can lack the finesse to present an idea well. So you studied a BFA in arts. So what are your thoughts on art education? And is it important for an artist to have a degree? Um, is it important for an artist to have a degree? Absolutely not. Um, and and I say that with the caveat. Um, th I'm thinking about my dad in the back of my head right now. I think I, I must have said that to him maybe, I don't know if it was after I graduated from college or if it was when I was about to, but basically I said something to the effect of, I had realized that um, I could I could do the thing that I loved without having to go to school for it, um, which is true for most things. If mm. you if you're passionate enough about something and you're going to pour your time and your effort into it, you'll eventually see fruits. And if you want to turn it into a, a career, you can like you with this podcast. Mm. You put a lot of time and effort into it. You didn't have to go to school to do this. Sure. Um, you can absolutely learn as you go. And that was not something I understood in high school. Um, I had to get through college to realize, oh, like, I, it's an important experience, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't have gone to a different school. I wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have not done it by any means because it opened up a lot of opportunities and introduced me to a lot of people and definitely gave me experiences that I would not have otherwise had. Like right now, my ability to sit here and talk about this stuff could not do as a freshman in college. I was uh, failing uh, aesthetics papers because I just didn't realize that I didn't know how to articulate myself. I didn't realize that I didn't have a language for what I was doing to begin with. So in, in that way, uh, a college degree isn't about the piece of paper. It's it's most definitely about the opportunity to be exposed to things you otherwise wouldn't, regardless of field. Um, if let's see, I mean, if I if I had not gone to college uh, and specifically focused on art and had been so hardcore about it and so committed and so weird about it, I can assure you, this would not be my job today. <laughs> Going to school, especially. At the time, uh, Bellhaven University, it's a teeny tiny little school in the state capital of Mississippi. Most people have never heard of it, um, which is part of the magic of it. So, you know, a lot of my classes uh, in, in school only had like seven or 12 people in them, uh -huh. you know, and if it was like uh, a class that was more focused on writing and essays and was just sort of a, um, a degree requirement, like aesthetics and art history, you know, be a full classroom, the whole thing. Um, but it was a very intimate, um, a very intimate program. 
So I had a ton of one-on-one -on -one time with all my professors. Um, it, uh, I, I had a chance to connect with all of my peers and it was really, it was difficult asking for feedback and looking for guidance because I didn't quite know how to do it yet. But being in that environment, I learned how to. Um, I learned how to seek out critiques um, and make sure that they were going to be effective. Um, and, you know, in large part due to learning how to talk about work. Um, it's like, it's like going into computer programming or something and you show up at the, the office and you don't know how to talk about what you just worked on last night. Hmm. Like, like how do you describe the code that you just entered into the program to create this effect or whatever? And if you don't have a language for that, you can't really participate. Um, so when it comes to saying whether or not you need a degree, no, you don't need a degree. But I would encourage anybody who wanted to be a part of the arts in any way to, you know, I guess seek out avenues of growth, seek out places that are going to um, foster a really authentic artistic experience, which I, having not being in the academic world right now, I don't know how many places are really really truly doing that at the time this little school i went to was i mean like you know we were reading books like um artist experience by um by dewey and uh the war of art and things like that so a lot of things that focused on the interior process of creativity mm. in such a way that you can walk into a grocery store and be enchanted by the fruit aisle you know Everywhere you go, there's an opportunity to understand something new. There's an opportunity to see the world in a in a brand new way, but you have to learn how to seek it. So you might be able to draw anything, but it's it's a lot harder to grow your creative process without that foundation of how to think about your process. So I wouldn't say you need a degree, but you need a community of more experienced peers to learn from and i think i think that was one of the most valuable things i took away from getting a degree at all um and it is nice to to put a tagline somewhere on my cv and be like yes i have proof that i learned how to do this thing um you know i i have i have years of experience and i learned under other professionals and that's probably the the biggest technical boon that i got from having a degree um because at the time, especially getting a bachelor's in fine art was supposed to lead me into getting a master's in fine art. And it was it was a weird sequence of events. It just didn't happen. I applied to a school a couple times and it was weird. One of my applications didn't go through or got lost. I can't really remember anymore. As you can see, it's not affecting my life anymore. Yeah. Um and it just kind of, I was so busy living life and doing other things that it got, it, it didn't work out and I just forgot about it. And today I don't really want an MFA. It wouldn't serve me unless it was a program that um, fostered that artistic community that I, I like so much about being in uh, academia. Um, 
you know, you're, you're locked in a small room with a projector in front of all of you, and you're all incredibly invested in this thing that you've spent so much time reading about and, you know, spending money on materials for, and that, um, that sort of crazed monk seeking knowledge, um, perspective is, is what I love about it. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily want the entire degree. I just want to be there for the classes that I care about. So, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I think a lot of people when I ask them the question or just when I talk to them in general is it's about the experience you get, not necessarily the education you get. Because I feel like at the end of the day, a lot of art degrees in any kind of kind of any kind of creative course or creative, particularly like academic creative course, they don't teach you a lot of things you really should know, like like especially like the business side of, of art. Like there's a there's a lot they kind of conveniently miss out, I think. Um I feel like actually, I think we're thing about this day. Like, it'd be really nice to get an idea of if everything artists missed out on in terms of education, who you know, artists who did degrees, and then make a course based on everything they missed out on. I think that would be really nice, actually, because it'd be nice to actually serve Absolutely. the next generation of artists and kind of be like, actually, these are things you actually need to know. I think about this day randomly. Like, I should, do, like, I don't know. Maybe, hey, maybe at one point in my life, I do that, and it'd be cool. Um, that'd be, nice <laughs> that would be amazing. Thing. That'd be a nice little legacy, and it'd be helpful. And it'd be helpful, you know. And then I can invite mm-hmm. all the people I know to be lecturers, which would be perfect. Um, <laughs> that'd be cool, like a little. Because the one thing that I used to love, I did a photography degree a minute, like a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And one thing I used to love is the visiting lecturers in terms of people coming in and telling about their work. And I feel like we need more of that. We need more people who actually are in the industry, and or even who aren't even in the industry, who are just artists in general day life, to kind of show the next generation of artists like what it really is like and to be honest because no one's re- ever really honest about you know the struggle of being an artist that was one of the things that we did get in in the program that I went to um I can't remember how many times and I can't remember what class it was but we had a couple of visiting artists come in and some of them I completely forgot about and that's no fault of their own um you know fickle college kid with lots of other things on my mind besides my studies. I, I didn't register everybody that came in, but there were a couple of artists who um, would would do exactly what you're describing. There was a, a lady who flew in from Australia. Uh, wow. She was stateside for whatever reason. And she, um, she was, I cannot remember her name. She was extremely colorful, eccentric, everything you would expect from an artist. Yeah. And she, um, she would, just basically just telling stories about her life um and how it fed into her art practice and stuff like that and that really did have a huge impact um another lady who made her living almost exclusively by doing art markets which was crazy to me and it's crazy to me now too um especially you know post post 2020 which took a big bite out of um you know, the the time and the availability and the convenience of just packing up and doing markets. Um, it, but she, you know, le- having somebody stand in front of you, somebody who's older, somebody who has stories, both good and bad, telling you, um, here's what sucks. Here's what makes me cry at night. Here's why I'm still doing it. Hmm. And those stories had quite an impact on me. Um, I think, I think, I think that is one of the parts that I like so much about a live in-person artistic community is basically swapping stories. You know, it's what you want from any workplace. Yes, that's true. 
So what is the biggest challenge of being an artist? Oh, God. Um, I actually had to write this one down. Um, ooh. You know, out of all of the things that I listed, the thing that um, that I feel like I've really come back to over the years many times, you know, being disciplined is always a big thing. Um, you know, being willing to get up early and stay up late just to complete the project that you care about, um, you know, especially if you're working another actual job besides trying to be a creative. That's very hard. And I've done that. I did that for a few years and it was absolutely draining. It was very difficult. Um, but that's still not the hardest part. Um, and it's something that I I could not have told my younger self to look out for or to work on until I got to where I am today. Um, actually, fairly recently. So there is a workbook that a lot of creatives really enjoy um gosh what's it called she's she's a very good author and i was very skeptical before i started doing it i think it's called the artist way and now i cannot remember um the author's name she also wrote a book called the golden thread i think but it's it's basically a workbook um pretty substantial that guides you through um, different healthy practices that all creatives and honestly all people should be practicing. So, you know, every morning you're supposed to, before you do anything else, before you have your coffee, before you take the dog on a walk, before you get out of bed even, grab your notebook and spend 30 minutes just word vomiting. <laughs> like, and and I was really skeptical. I was like, God, 30 minutes of this every morning? You want me to just, do you know what my brain sounds like at 6 a.m.? It's it's cacophonous. Like they, I, How can you ask somebody to do this? But in the process of doing that, you know, you get a bunch of crap out of the way. Um, your mind is settled. You already know what's bothering you. And if you've if you've taken the exercise seriously, you've already probably found a couple of avenues to solve what's bothering you or at least to deal with it and things like that. So she had that. She had different exercises that you're supposed to do um, each week. Um, I think it's sort of a 12 week program and you can start it and stop it as many times as you want. I've done it twice now. Um, and one, you know, some of the things that she asks you to do um, are, you know, by yourself, take yourself on an artist date, whatever that looks like, however that fits your practice. Um, you know, by basically, you know, treat your inner child, like take, let that part of yourself guide you to the kids' toy section at the dollar store and buy a pinwheel. I kid you not. I bought this absurd pen <laughs> based on that prompt. And I, I don't buy frivolous things. I don't buy, I don't like chintzy stuff. I don't like plastic. I don't, you know, if it's, <laughs> especially the older I get, if it's biodegradable, that's fine. If it's not biodegradable, I really don't want to spend money on it um, because it's going to be there forever. And once it's in my position, I'm responsible for it. But it gave me permission to do things that I enjoyed that weren't necessarily constructive. Um, and to, Re basically, and this was the thing that I couldn't teach my younger self until recently, to relearn how to access that deep creative state 
that only comes when you are fully invested in what you're doing. You've lost all inhibition. You're not self-conscious. You're not worrying about what something looks like. You're not worrying about whether or not what you're doing is a waste of time. And the best example I have of that was something that I used to do a lot in high school. And especially when I was a young kid, I would have a notebook on my nightstand, my little lamp, my little bedside. And I would be excited to go to bed because I knew I'd get to sit there and either write or draw uninterrupted for as many hours as I wanted. More valuable than I thought it was. And then I got older and didn't have time for that and needed a real sleep like an adult. Um, but there was um, there were a few nights where I would be awake at 2 or 3 a.m. Just just awake. Just couldn't fall asleep. I'm a teenager. My sleep schedule's messed up. Woe is me. But I have my notebook, so everything's okay. Um, and I literally fell asleep writing a poem for class. Uh, it was for one of my literature classes in high school. Loved the teacher for that one, too, because she was also extremely encouraging, very intentional with her students and things like that. It makes a huge difference. Hmm. Um, I I wrote this poem, and I think it was supposed to be more or less about graduating high school, life-changing, you know, like moving on from where you used to be and things like that. And that was, that was the gist. Everybody write a poem. And so my 2 a.m. brain must have... Um, excreted something ex exceptionally good because she read it out loud to the class and I'm sitting here holding my my desk chair going like I don't know what I wrote I just was <laughs> writing things I was following my gut I was having fun doing something and just you know following my nose and um I think most people have seen this video by now it's a TED talk given by Elizabeth Gilbert where she talks about um the creative process and she uses an example and I cannot remember the name of the artist. No, it's an author. It was a writer. I think it was a poet. And the example that she gives in her Ted talk um, about, so this, this writer had a practice. It didn't matter where she was, what she was doing, what was happening, uh, how important it was. Um, if she felt something coming, you know, the the creative force, the genius, the genie, whatever you want to call it, she referenced it um, as as feeling like a freight train or a massive gust of wind is traveling across the landscape. And if she didn't make it to a pen and paper immediately, it would find somebody else to channel through. Oh. And when I first heard that, I was like, that's a little eccentric. That's That's like, I don't know if I've ever experienced that. And then I started paying closer attention to my process, and especially the older I've gotten and the, the deeper that I've, I've connected with what works for me. Um, I have to have, I have to have my sketchbook, always. It doesn't matter where I'm going. We, we're going out to eat. I'm about to go get in bed. I, in case something shows up, because most of the time, being creative or being artistic, whatever, is not about, um, you know, sitting down at your desk and coming up with brilliant ideas every day. It's about leaving the door open for whatever is going to find you, whatever, whatever is intriguing to your senses, and you have to see what happens. You know, it's you. Creativity doesn't work if you're not willing to just 
play. Um, you have to be willing to let go of everything, your expectations, what you want from yourself, whether or not rent is due, whether or not you got to go get groceries, whether or not the dog just peed in the living room again, because it happens. Um, you have to make a space within yourself and a little nook in the physical world to let things happen and not be a control freak and let the whole inner child thing actually just work itself out because you can't force it. So <laughs> the hardest thing about being an artist is returning to being a kid and letting yourself play. Because if you don't play, you're not really being, you're not letting that creativity breathe. You're not, you know, I think that's where a lot of original ideas come from is learning how to feed your intuition instead of, you know, treating it like a horse that you're hooking up to the plow today. Like, all right, we got to get this done. If I don't, if I don't, you know, if something creative doesn't come out of this soil today, I'm a failure. Can't do that. <laughs> and I used to be that way quite a lot where if I wasn't doing something and it wasn't productive, like even, even a, in a creative way, it wasn't worthy of the time that I spent on it. You know, our most precious non-renewable resource yeah. known to humanity is your time. And so learning to learning to take that most valuable resource and hand it over to something you don't understand is very hard once you've grown up. Um, once you've learned that you have a schedule that you need to go to bed on time that you need to eat X amount of protein this afternoon so that you're focused at your desk and, you know, all these little things um, that are helpful and are important, but we get fixated on doing everything right. Um, and so a lot of that creative process falls by the wayside. And I couldn't have known that until I reached adulthood. It's just, the part, it's just part of it. And it's, it's annoying and it sucks. Um, Sometimes it feels like I spent way too long not tapping into that, but I couldn't know what I know now. So it helps me not be angry at my younger self. Like I didn't waste my time. Hmm. I just had to do things the hard way, which is hard for the course for me. <laughs> but but that's the interesting thing though, that like you wouldn't have been able to get that information or that understanding when you were younger. That's the whole point. You know, you had to be older and you had to understand. You had to kind of relearn and, and refigure stuff out and understand for you to know that. Like, I think we forget that all the answers aren't always available to us. I think getting older, especially, which is something I'm going to add, we have just added onto this very long list of questions in the, somewhere near the bottom. Um, but getting older is actually such a blessing, I think, because I feel like it's something that a lot of people are afraid of or they kind of, I'm fair definitely for myself for sure, I've always been a bit fearful of it. Um, until you get to a threshold and you're just like, okay, I just don't really care anymore because then you realize life's about living. It's not about waiting for the next thing. It's about doing something today, doing something you enjoy, having fun, as you said, playing, and kind of just mm -hmm. like realizing, actually, you know what? Life is life is is great now. You don't have to worry about what it's going to be like in a year's time, in two years' time, in 10 years' time. So yeah. I think what, basically when it comes to like art and creativity, like you can't predict what your career is going to be in a month's mm -hmm. time, let alone a year's time. So don't worry about it. Worry about what you can do today that is going to help you be the most productive for, you know, the next week or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, tapping into the present moment instead of getting overwhelmed by the past and the future, which are not in your control to begin with. 
Yeah. And, you know, circling back to that whole playing like a kid, being creative like a kid, fully invested in the present moment. Hmm. That's, you know, yeah. that's quite a bit of freedom to let yourself do that. And also not being afraid to fail and just make stupid mistakes and, and kind of learn. The, yeah. As you said like earlier, like the hard way, because kids, the best thing about kids is that they're so curious about everything and they don't really care what people think when they create stuff or when they make work or whatever. Like they're making mm-hmm. it not, the problem is, it, and this plays in social media, but the problem is that we live so much nowadays for other people's validation. We never really live for our own. And I think that's really a huge issue because like you might want to go and create something because you like it, not because a million other people are going to like it. It's like, it, it's a tough situation, I think, for a creative because it's like you want to create work that people love. But at the same time, like no one's going to love it the same way you love it as the person who creates it. So it's like yeah. a hard balance to find out. Like, I'm taking one of my money off it as well on top of that. That's like a whole other layer. And it's like, you know, like how do you promote that? And how do you make you yourself seem very accessible whilst also not wanting to be accessible to everybody because you don't have the time to be? Yes. You know, it's <laughs> it's a huge balance. But yeah, anyway, we'll get into that later, but it's a huge balance. <laughs> um, okay, so do you think that society values art and creative careers in general? I, you know, I had a really interesting thought about that. See if I wrote it down. Because when you bring in the idea of society into um, into the creative field, you're ultimately going to be influenced by the time you live in. Society is going to view creativity and the production of art in a different way. So when I first read the question and thought about it, I was like, you know, when you bring up the year 1945, I don't think about art. I could not tell you a famous painting that was created in 1945. Um, and so when you when you ask the question, how does how does society feel about art and creativity? It depends on where you are what you're involved in, what kind of society you're you're in to begin with. Like for me, you know, using the university atmosphere as a great example, creativity and art is everything. That was my society. Once I left that, you know, I'm working at coffee shops, um, you know, and occasionally you'll you'll meet somebody who wants to have genuine conversation about it or they want to talk about the art on the walls or they want to talk about what you do and i and and in that way i feel like creativity and art and society is heavily dependent on whether or not people are willing to give it time and value um i mean you you could argue that people are always giving it time and value they are but on the larger scale of things Society wants to use art for its own purposes to a certain extent, and that that can be good or bad. It is a completely neutral statement. Like there's there are a couple of programs, um, especially here in the Southwest, um, Phoenix to be specific. And I, I like to keep my thumb on what's happening. Like what are they offering? Like what kind of shows are going up? Like what kind of performances are we are we you know putting grants towards and stuff like that? Because it's important. Um, and and those are the things that I feel like society at large is going to be interested in is can art tell my story, my universal story? Um, my experience, can it be translated into something 
more, something bigger. Um, and, and it can be good or bad. It can be used for political means. It can be used for clout. Um, and sometimes it's really authentic and really beautiful. You know, down in Phoenix, you get lots of murals that are focused on uh, Latin communities and indigenous communities, and they're beautiful and they're fascinating. That's what society cares about because that's that's who makes up that society. So I think <laughs> I think society and culture care about art and creativity to a certain extent because we live such complicated lives, especially in the modern era. And, you know, that's not to romanticize the past. The past was also complicated. But especially in regards to things like social media, um, how readily we're able to communicate or just produce something, you know, there are there are means and, and ways of doing things that couldn't be imagined 100 years ago. I mean, mind-blowing exchanges of information on a global scale. It's awesome. And I think as we progress, that that whole global community thing is going to have to round itself out and become something new and different. Because right now, I think society views art as kind of a means to an end, especially if you are a modern artist with an Instagram account and a Patreon and a YouTube channel and all this other stuff to try and direct traffic to yourself. So it's, I feel like it often just presents itself as another business opportunity. Um, instead of an authentic creative experience, which is, you know, what it should be. Oh. Society is a mixed bag, either good nor bad, but definitely complicated. <laughs> so, but how do you think that, or do you think that it's important for artists to just be kind of like the creative, um, kind of like the creative individual? Like, do you think that business is always going to be, play a part in like an artist's journey if they want to make money being an artist? If you want to make money being an artist, absolutely. Because you can't really escape it. Yeah, not at all. Like it, it was, it, it was a factor in my decision in becoming an artist from a young age. It's oh, cool. You want to, you want to be a starving artist? That's really cute, kid. Mm. You know, because the the practical effects of choosing a creative career um, ultimately fans out into everything you do, whether or not you can afford healthcare, whether or not you can go out to eat yeah. tonight. You know. Um, yeah. I think it depends on what you're willing to do. And this is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anybody to go out and do this, but if you want to be like Vincent, if you want to be like Van Gogh or Gauguin, you are going to, um, really do some damage on yourself, hmm. you know, like, like, and those are very extreme examples, obviously. Um, for the most part, I, as far as I remember, both of them as artists, more or less through monetary gain to the wayside yeah vincent of course had a very complex experience he wanted to sell his artwork didn't didn't happen and the result was was somebody who was um both of them at least from my perspective i'm not an art historian so <laughs> please nobody grade me um from my perspective it's a very torturous existence when you divorce the practical um from from the eccentric creative parts of life because it's like I heard somebody say recently money in and of itself is not evil um everything is a tool and it carries the connotations and the perspective that you give it um as an artist 
if you monetize your work or you find a way to supply yourself with some kind of income stream, you have money to make more art. You have money to uh, take time off to go to a, a retreat somewhere in France. You can do all kinds of things. That practical side helps feed the creative side, the side that is definitely not as practical. Um, I think I think divorcing the two is a very dangerous path. Um, and it can lead to some crazy results. But I, I hate to see a world of artists who are just so busy monetizing their work that it's not fun anymore. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, be yeah, because that's a um a slippery slope. It's kind of it's, it's like a um it's a sliding scale. Because like you like do you want to be like super super commercial and become like a factory and then you're just pumping out work but it has no personality to it and it has no meaning or heart? Or do you want to be the artist who sits there and labors over their work and creates, you know, beautiful, amazing personal images, but then nobody's buying them? It's like where yeah. do you sit on that scale? Where are you happy to sit on that scale? And as you said earlier, like choosing where you sit on that scale, it's not just tied to that scale, but choosing where you sit on that scale will kind of determine how you live your life. And then it will determine mm -hmm. the lifestyle you have. And then it will determine, you know, finances and, you know, can you afford a car and can you afford a holiday and can you afford kids? You know, it it kind yeah. of, it really just feeds into that. Because a lot of, a lot of artists I know just have really rich husbands um, mm -hmm. or they have husbands who work or partners, not necessarily just husbands, many husbands, but partners who work like a good paying job and they can just sit at home and make art. Not that that art is less valid, but I always feel like with art from, you know, some people I've spoken to, it, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Like not everything is as it seems online, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I definitely would encourage people generally just to, to not feel like they're not doing enough because you're only doing enough as much as you can do yourself with the resources you have it's so easy to look at everybody else and be like, oh, they've got a new show, or they've got, you know, all these materials, they've got a big airy studio. But it's like, mm -hmm. that's because that's where they're at in life. Mm -hmm. You are not at that place. Work with what you have. And then maybe you'll get that if that's your ambition, but that doesn't have to be your ambition. Like mm -hmm. I always say to people, like, don't live somebody else's dream, like focus on your own, because otherwise you're going to get stuck chasing something that you don't even want. And then when you realize you don't want it, you're going to have wasted time realizing that you could have actually done something with that time. I would have mm -hmm. propelled you in a different direction. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm just rambling sometimes, but I don't know. I kind of feel like, I don't know. I told so many artists who, who just seem so lost. And it makes mm -hmm. me sad because it's just like, it's not easy, but it's also kind of what you signed up for. Not in a rude way, but like you didn't sign up for something secure. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you exactly. have to figure out, you have to really figure out Again, like going back to what I just said, like, you know, that sliding scale, like where do you fit on that sliding scale? And, and how is that going to affect every decision you make? Yeah. That's my yeah, talk over. No, no. It's um that that is a huge it's a huge facet of learning how to just live as an artist without without letting either your 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 physical needs fall by the wayside or your creative needs die out. Um you're always going to have to, you've, you've got, let's see, two resources, three resources. You've got time uh, and you've got money. Um, and there's one more and I can't remember because I'm always focused on time and money, unfortunately. But you have to trade one for the other. If you don't have money, you have to spend time. 
if you don't have time, you have to spend money. If your starter goes out on your car and you can't fix it yourself, you lack the skills and the time, you're going to have to pony up. And so what's something I've noticed that I think I always, in a weird way, I think I always saw it coming, choosing an artistic career. I was always going to be spending more time to take care of myself and the things that are that I need. I'm going to make stuff myself. I'm going to salvage things because my money is coming from a, a weird, shaky resource that um, supplies me in fits and spurts. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's terrible. And you have to be willing to compensate for those terrible times, even when it's already good. Um, I. <laughs> I kind of I kind of got it easy. My dad was a financial advisor, and so I learned a lot of healthy monetary practices from him anyway. Um, he just he set a really, really wonderful examples of how to do the things that you care about without making idiotic decisions. You don't have to make poor decisions. You can. It's an option. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to tell you not to, but you don't have to. You can do what you love without suffering, but you have to take the right steps. So, yeah. yeah definitely a learned skill <laughs> so it's funny you say time and money because i had this exact conversation with somebody yesterday on instagram because uh, mm -hmm. i always say time space and money i feel like you can't have all three of those in the same moment of time unless you're very very rich i think you have to sacrifice one of those um, and the problem is that to be a quote-unquote successful artist you need all three and it's mm -hmm. kind of like how do you get to a point in your life where you have the time the space and the money to create because having the motivation to create is great, but having the means is a different matter entirely. Mm -hmm. You know, just because you have the best ideas ever, you may not have the materials. And yeah. the opposite way around, you may have the materials, but you may not have the motivation. It's like there's just so many like facets of what you need to have in order to be an artist, let alone just creating the work. That's not even getting into creating the work, you know. That's just yeah. the mental side of being an artist and being like, oh actually I want to create something. It's like, well, where do you mm -hmm. start? It's it's a uh, Actually, that's a question I didn't even ask on this list, but I'm going to ask you anyway, which is like, what kind of skills do you need to be an artist? Um, not not very many. And that's not to say that it isn't still a skillful thing to do. Like, it's hmm. it's it's really weird um, to be an artist. I think. I think you really need to maintain and feed into that skill of um, the deep creative play that is so essential to making anything like I've got a really good friend who she can't draw like I don't think she can she can draw a little bit but you know she's not she's not trained she's not she's not going around doing portraits or anything like that but she um you know she'll put collages together she will find materials that she likes and just let herself mess around with it and I th I honestly think that's one of the only skills that you need as an artist. There are other things that are going to make a lifestyle as a creative much easier. I have a much easier time being able to do a commission because I took several drawing classes and I practice in my sketchbook every other day. Um, you know, there are things that will make your life easier, but the only requirement is the willingness to experiment, you know. That, yeah. that that whole creative mindset that feeds into everything else and makes you more willing to spend the time and the effort and the money <laughs> to do, thing, do anything in the first place. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You just got to show up. I mean, that's true. That's half, yeah, that's half the battle, I guess. 
for now. So you're a full-time artist. At what point were you able to make the leap into being a full-time artist? Like, what point did you know, this is the moment I need to do it? Um, so it was the moment when I, I kind of didn't have a choice anymore. Mm. Um, mm. So the last few years have been, you know, all, all centered around 2020 um, because Prior to 2020, we didn't know what that year was going to look like. Absolutely. Uh, so in 2019, um, I married my husband, and um, we just kind of decided to move to Arizona. He had he had uh, an, an aunt and an uncle who lived in Phoenix, and I was ready to leave Mississippi, and so was he. Um, you know, it was just time. And they say that, you know, when you get married, it's good to move away from family because you rely on each other. And not your society of people that you have for yeah. years. You have to learn this it new relationship. Depends on the couple, yeah. I mean, absolutely. But for us, it was it was definitely the right decision. Um, <clears throat> so we took off. And, you know, it was a weird, rocky few years. We subled a room from a couple and, you know, made new friends and learned how to live in the 115-degree environment that is Phoenix. Do not recommend. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a beautiful place. The Sonoran Desert is an experience, but you cannot go outside without being prepared. It's crazy. Um, so, you know, massive changes going from a verdant, very easy to live in environment full of people that we know to a Martian landscape full of strangers. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I was working in a coffee shop and um you know, doing commissions and the odd illustration job and stuff like that. And it was not fun. It was very difficult. It was, it was, I don't want to say the entire experience was depressing because it wasn't. There were a lot of really beautiful, fun things in that difficult time. But, you know, we had just moved. Um, we both had weird income streams and 2020 kicked in. And, you know, we're a couple of young idiots. We're not paying attention to the housing market. We just know that we we have enough money saved up for a down payment and we can potentially buy a house. And so we're just like, all right, let's go for it. Let's see what we can find. Uh, let's see what the process looks like. Um, yay, paperwork. Oh, it was rough. Uh, we ended up finding a house and, um, you know, far north of Phoenix, um, we're actually like, kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's hard to describe to people where we are. We are literally in the middle of Arizona. It is wilderness and it's wow. beautiful and it's unique and it's strange and I love it. Um, you know, you, you go from spending your entire life living under canopies of trees, being inspired by that, loving that, feeding on that. And you've never seen a horizon consistently all the way around you before. Um, so, you know, there's mountain ranges and and it's awesome. So we said yes to it. Um, bought this house in the middle of nowhere. And because it's in the middle of nowhere, we both were already working remotely because of COVID. Um, you know, it was sort of like either you can keep taking online commissions, you can keep doing um, <laughs> lame logos that you're not passionate about for people that you would never meet, hmm. or you can live hard for a few years and go all in on your art practice. And, you know, my husband was incredibly supportive. He was like, I want you to do what you care about because 
if you're if you're spending your time and all of your effort on something that means something is worth existing around is worth having be a part of you and you know what we tell each other especially in the beginning was is what you're doing putting good things into the world hmm. is the work that you're doing like is it is it is it good is it is it i don't want to use the word wholesome but like does it have meat to it and you know doing logos had no meat in it for me it was it was just work and so you know i just it was terrifying but in the middle of all of this chaos and moving and massive life changes it was just sort of like um either you can you can commit or you can throw it away because there's a chance that you'll never come back to it um you know i i like to think i'm a really practical person i you know <laughs> There's another lifetime somewhere where I'm like a nurse practitioner, like very practical, very down to earth. I can I can fix things and know how these things work. Um, you know, it's all in the textbook um, because that would have been a really safe, reasonable job to choose. But. And this isn't this isn't to play up the importance of having an artistic gift. But I had something that was weird and that I could do that it seemed like a lot of people couldn't. So I was like, maybe I should give this a shot because maybe it's actually worth something beyond myself. So, yeah, uh, 2021, I uh, I bit the bullet and redesigned a website for the third time, I think, uh, and started trying to post more regularly to Instagram. And it seems to be sticking. It's it's terrifying when you <laughs> terrifying in a good way, but you spend so much time and effort on something and you actually start to see growth. You actually yeah. start to see um what you've wanted to see for years. You know, it's like waiting on right. it's like waiting on a date palm to give you fruit. And all of a sudden you walk outside one summer waiting to be disappointed and it's laden with all kinds of goodies and it's, it's terrifying. It's like, I didn't know this could happen. Um, but you know, I had an opportunity to tend the garden and I took it and it hasn't been easy. It's not, it's not a dream come true most days. Um, but on the days when it is, it's, you know, I think to myself, if I died tomorrow, I'd be okay with this. I did something I cared about, which is a massive blessing that so many people don't get to do. So, yeah, <laughs> 2020 pushed me into it. And I live in the middle of nowhere and I, I didn't want to work uh, anywhere else. So, <laughs> so I 24-7 in my house. So it's great. <laughs> Let's get into your work because that's what I talk about. So can you describe your work for those who may not have seen it? Describe it. Um, hmm. I came up with something relatively succinct. Um, so obviously, uh, the imagery I'm working with right now is werewolves. Um, they've gotten a lot of nicknames based on their their format. Um, I've had one person call them square wolves. Somebody else called them captive canids. And I can't remember if I came up with this or if somebody else did, but bound beasties. 
Um, but Square Wolves is definitely a favorite of mine. Somebody said it, and I was like, I'm an idiot to have not thought of this. Um, so yeah, uh, it's it's basically, so I, I should probably make a bit of a distinction. Um, they're, everybody calls them werewolves because it's what they look like. Um, it's it's what it, it reads as. It's, it's a human body with a werewolf's head, face type thing, you know, canine, whatever. But the... Um, so the, the original idea for the illustration was, I, I mean, I like werewolves anyway. Everybody does. Wolves are cool. It's whatever. Um, and I had to be a nerd about it. It couldn't just be a normal werewolf. I wanted to research werewolf folklore and the origins of the concept of a werewolf and stuff like that. And so I found um, this concept of dog-headed people, uh, kynocephali, the Greek, um, depending on whether you spell it with with a K or with a C, it could be cynocephali, but I like kyno better because I think the K on the word visually looks cooler. I don't know. It, it feels like it's closer to the Greek, uh, the Greek lettering, but anyway. Um, but dog-headed people, uh, not necessarily werewolves, not a sudden transformation into a monster. Um, they're really a representation of this old world concept of people who literally had dog heads and they growled and they barked and it was an entire society of people like they they wore clothing and they you know did business with traders and stuff like that it was the weirdest thing i've ever read i was like why would you ever think this exists who comes up with this um marco polo that's who um for whatever reason and so I really liked this idea of instead of being a, a werewolf and transforming into something terrible once a month and, uh, you know, just the idea of the monster, it's this idea of existing in a constant state of otherness, of strangeness, constant strangeness. So it's these humanoid forms with dog heads, uh, which is part of what fed into the evolution of the imagery was this kind of esoteric old world flavor. I didn't pull from any one visual vocabulary from any one society throughout history. It was just sort of a synthesis of how do people process these forms in their simplest distillation. So, you know, you've got, um, a lot of things I've noticed that I wasn't really paying attention to as far as style goes, you've got this kind of cephali form, you know, obviously a human being with something strange going on, but the interpretation of the musculature and the hair and these really dramatic dog faces, I wanted to pull from, um, you know, old manuscript illustrations and, you know, new world imagery from South America and um, sort of the the stoic Egyptian, um, you know, uh, carving, very, very stoic, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just a pose that is evocative but timeless. You know, you see these carvings of Egyptian kings and they are stiff as a board but they're timeless. And, you know, that was, that was what they were going for. They didn't want, um, 
you know, a photorealistic representation of their leader. They wanted this eternal imagery that would stand guard. Um, so a little bit of that, a little bit of um, Eastern visual influences. You know, you get these rounded squares and things like that. And I love that shape because I think it, I think it makes sense. I think it's a very human shape because we like boxes. We like containment systems. We really do. And so when you put a rounded edge on that, when you simplify the form um, and the color, which is another aspect of the style that I'm, I'm still working on, limited color palette, lots of burnt umber, um, lots of uh, ultramarine blue in the shadows and things like that. And then, you know, for whatever reason, I, I, I love hot pink. Um, obviously, I don't want my entire world to be hot pink, but it is such a joyful, absolutely delightful color. I mean, you know, if happiness was a color, it would probably be hot pink because it's just so bombastic. So you've got that, but you've also got eerie, out of place greens and cool colors uh, being pulled from the shadows because I love, I just, I, I love difficult to convey lighting. And so this human form and a little bit of the the softness and the the animal shape in the face just sort of at this point serves as a way to explore those colors that that sort of liminal twilight sunset sunrise lighting that happens over large landscapes um just where the entire color scheme came from was i was just so obsessed with the colors of the sunset outside my window and how how close and intimate the entire world started to feel once the sun was near the horizon because the colors are just mind-blowingly beautiful when you've got this much space to see them in the southwest so you know i uh <laughs> on that note i'm not sure that i would have created these if i hadn't moved to the southwest at all because I never would have experienced a landscape like this, especially long term when you're living in it. You know, it's it's different than going on vacation and going like, oh, I really like I like this, this and this. But if you're not immersed in it to a certain extent, it's hard to really synthesize something from it. At least it is for me because I'm very impatient and I, I wouldn't otherwise revisit it if I would just come for a week in the summer and left. Um, but uh not a not a very like small the succinct description of what my work looks like, but um there's not a whole lot of ways to put it. It's it's some people with wolf heads uh in boxes with the same colors over and over again because I'm a creature of habit. <laughs> it, what's really interesting that you said in terms of like your inspirations, in terms of like, you know, like Egyptian tombs, for instance, you know, carvings and Egyptian tombs, and then you're also like even like Chinese vases. And like when you said that, it's kind of like that makes a lot of sense looking at your work. It's kind of because the images are quite flat. Mm -hmm. Like they're not necessarily particularly like three dimensional, but then they also they could be like it's interesting. It, they could be like printed, but then they could also be like painted, but they can also be like stenciled. It it kind of mm -hmm. the way in which you've created them, the style you have is is quite universal amongst different kind of types of medium. And because obviously you use mixed media, which is the next question in terms of like. The things like graphite, colored pencils, watercolor, like what led you to creating a mixed media artwork? Um, I think I just 
gave myself permission to experiment one day because I had all of these different mediums in my tool belt already. I I mean, I'm not a master by any means. <laughs> I have not been alive long enough to master anything. Um, but I, I understood the properties of my materials well enough that I finally sort of felt comfortable getting weird with it and using things in ways that I didn't before because kind of, kind of at a crossroads, it was, it was, um, uh, gosh, almost a year ago. Um, it was October of last year. I, you know, a lot of things were changing. A lot of things were difficult and it's been a way of life for me since I was very small, but if I'm experiencing something that I don't know how to process, I don't necessarily dissociate hmm. so much as I do um, disappear into a project or I let myself, you know, make up a story and, you know, do a little bit of writing or do a little bit of doodling. And so as a way to sort of deal with things that I couldn't change and things that I couldn't control, I gave myself something to sort of play with, to invest in. And so I did a drawing of a, an actual werewolf somebody who's like transforming into a monster and just played around with totally different techniques and um, trying to use colored pencils in ways that I hadn't before because initially I picked them up and I was trying to use them like graphite, you know, very, very slow, careful rendering process on extremely smooth, um, you know, Bristol illustration paper and stuff like that. Totally different process. Um, but I loved the depth that I could get out of taking the technique that I had acquired through using graphite pencils and applying it to something with actual color involved. And, you know, the first couple pieces I did that with were a hot mess because, you know, when you first try something, it's like, there's so yeah. much going on here. There's so many colors and I don't know how to coordinate everything because I'm so busy just experiencing like this brand new medium in a brand new way. and once I got that out of my system, it was a lot easier to take the colored pencils and combine them with um, something I'd done my whole life, watercolor. So it was just kind of, it was a happy accident for sure. I just, I didn't know it was going to happen. I just wanted to play one day. That's cool though. I think that's, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier in terms of the idea of like, you just need to experiment and kind of just, you know, let kind of your preconceived notions of what it is that you want to create like kind of put them to one side and then just try something new because then there like if you don't try and do stuff you're going to become bored with your own work and actually there's a question for later but i'm going to ask you now like how do you make sure that you wait should i ask this question now or should i ask this question later i'll ask the question later as you can tell like these never go in the order because i'm just like let me just do this no let me do that um i give myself way more time editing because i'm gonna to have to call this bit out that i'm rambling about um <laughs> Yeah, okay, the next logical question to ask would be like, so are there any particular mediums that you would like to explore or that you, that you don't already use that you you kind of feel like, oh, actually, I might want to try this? Yeah, I mean, starting small, I would really like to get more into gouache and uh, oil pastels. Mm. Um, so mediums in general that are going to deliver uh, a whole lot of pigment um in very like like large quantities of pigments so like i see people in videos using oil pastels that are like as big around as my fingers and you know just like chunks of pigment and i'm like that's what i need to use 
because the bigger these pieces get, um, the more I really don't want to spend the next three weeks uh, trying to add color and value with little bitty colored pencils. I'm going to have to, you know, literally find bigger materials to let me do the things that I want to do. So definitely gouache, definitely oil pastel, um, which are both like I understand them in principle, but I've never used either one extensively. So it's going to be really messy for a while, but it'll yeah. it'll pay off. Um, and I actually really want to investigate um, three-dimensional mediums to create um, like bas-relief pieces of one of the wolves, um, pretty large format. But I've never done that either. So I'm probably going to have to... Um, play around and experiment with things like uh, paper mache and plaster Paris before I invest in anything too serious. Um, it'd be really cool to do metalworking and things like that. I just, you know, when, when you were talking about the versatility of, of these things, like, you know, it could be painted, it could be drawn, it could be, it could be stamped, it could be pressed, anything. That's kind of what I like so much about it is it translates to anywhere somebody could use a stencil and tag a train car with it you know mm. yeah. and, and and i like that i've never i've never made anything that felt um fluid felt really universal and transmissible because at the end of the day that's really what i want the art that i make to be and it's what i want it to do i want it to communicate and i want it to be I want it to walk that line between I can digest this easily and turn it into a sticker or a t-shirt, but it's also visceral and strange and makes me a little uncomfortable and um, is still, a, a, there's, it's, it's easy to digest, but it has a weird flavor. Yeah. And I want to find a way to walk that line uh, as effectively and authentically as possible. Um, you know, I, I still really want to, I'd like to consider myself a fine artist. And I think a lot of that is going to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's going to hinge on my process, how I create, why I create, do I have a point to my creation? There's a whole world of different definitions around what it means to be a fine artist. And I'm not going to, I'm not even going to touch that. Um, but I would like the mediums that I use and the formats that I, I put my imagery into to be impactful. So bigger would be better and bolder would be better. And those are both things that I hate, <laughs> which is ironic. <laughs> so it's interesting because I actually didn't realize until I looked, obviously did more research, is how big your images are. Yes. And I looked at, <laughs> I, I saw a, re a reel or an Instagram video of you like working on the eye and I was like, wait a minute. These are huge. <laughs> These are really big. Can you talk a bit about the scale of the work and why create work at that scale? Yeah. So let's see. I've got little bitty pieces of paper that I just, I keep on my desk. That's so cool. So, you know, uh, five by seven, I think is how Yeah, that's roughly, yeah, roughly about five by seven. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, easy, easy to get an idea out on a paper this size. Um, but once I, so I hate thumbnails. Um, I think I think I said one time that uh, thumbnails use up all the good creative juice, so don't do thumbnails. But I would never tell somebody not to use thumbnails because 
you never know when it could be helpful. And all of my teachers would be angry at me for not doing thumbnails, at least to a certain extent, they'd be disappointed. Um, let's see, this really big piece, here we go. This is how large things wow. are getting. That's so I think, I think this is um, 18 by 24, something yeah. like that. Um, and I chronically hate pieces this size because it's, um, as you can see, it takes up a lot of space. It's very overwhelming. And it it's a, just a different animal. Um, I was talking about it with my husband, uh, trying to translate what I'm creating at, you know, six by eight, five by seven scale into something that is bigger than my torso. You've got to consider things like, um, what, what did he call it? Color scaling? But basically the bigger something gets, you're gonna ha you're gonna end up having to treat your color palette slightly differently, um, <laughs> just to like show the world how big a nerds we are. So he likes to paint he likes to paint miniatures, right? Okay. So like you know anything from like airplanes to fantasy stuff, Warhammer. So you know there's like a rack of paints and like wow. you know Kalinsky sable little brushes and stuff like that. And there's a real science to taking. Um, what looks like a reasonable color palette for that character and applying it to something that is the size of your thumb. Um, you know, realistically, you might paint an orc in a lot of olive drab and lots of neutral tones and things like that, because that makes sense. That is what that character would wear. It's what, you know, it's what he would do. But you get it down to the size of your thumb and all of a sudden those colors look like mud. Hmm. So I'm having to learn how to do it in the reverse take colors that I, I know work at small scale and find the balance in applying them to something much, much bigger. Um, it's, it's really weird. It's really hard. And I know I'm going to have a few large scale pieces that will be duds ultimately. I'm yeah, going to be course. happy with them. But, uh, you know, eat, you have to eat paper sometimes. So it's the only way you're going <laughs> to learn. It's the only way you're going to learn. Otherwise, you're not going to know and you'll have no idea. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so. Do you prefer working smaller? Um, yes, uh, for, for different reasons from working big. Um, I really enjoy working large because I like the impact um, that size has. I like, um, I like how consuming a large piece is. Um, I'm thinking of a really good art, artistic reference right now, um, Barnett Newman who does the massive monochrome canvases with these disturbing lines through them. Uh, if I'm remembering that correctly, I really hope I am. Um, but they are so big that if it wasn't in a gallery room by itself, it would eat you. <laughs> that size, that scale is just so powerful. It's like when you realize how large a cloud is or how many feet tall a pine tree really is they're 100 feet plus it's ridiculous but you don't know that until you get you know you experience it so i really i really want to do large scale because i think large scale is uh in a lot of ways ultimately better um for the experience of artwork um you know you should do a billion of something and you should try to do it really big sometimes um you know it's sort of like stretching 
you've got to reach your toes every now and then. But I definitely prefer small scale because I can I can pump out tons of ideas and I can see them all the way through. Like, you know, I can qualify this five by seven as a finished piece because it was petite enough for me to um, see this this specific process on the specific paper all the way through. So I like small scale because I um, I really just want to be an idea factory most weeks. But I uh, I'm trying to change that. <laughs> Got at least one professor who would commend my efforts and would tell me that I should have been doing it a lot sooner, which is understandable. He's totally right. <laughs> I do wonder, though, if you think that some artists create bigger work just because it's like more showy. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think that's that's I think that's one of the problems that having a big canvas is great. Having a big image or a big piece of paper to work on is great. But you then have to think about how you're going to fill that. And it's like, like it, it kind of it almost becomes its own problem in a way. Mm -hmm. same problem in a way because like you have to then figure out you know like it kind of it kind of opens the question of like space and, and images and like you know what is uh what's appropriate and also like kind of you know how you can utilize the canvas or, or paper or space you have to create this work mm -hmm. um, and i think sometimes in some cases with a more abstract work maybe so if that's going to get me into trouble saying that but i feel like people just seem to work big because it's just it seems like it's a better idea when really you could have probably just did that half the size you know yeah think, yeah like the point of what you just made was just to make big and like that's what's yeah. that's what it's writing on essentially yes and then you wonder why it doesn't sell because it's like 100 by 100 and nobody has the space in the house for that you kind of can't right. wonder why <laughs> just an observation i kept from a casual observation from wandering around art fairs for a few years yeah. you know it's i i love the thing is like i always love seeing scales of work in person because the scale of work is really important obviously bigger work attracts your attention a lot more easier but then I, I've, I've personally always found it's the smaller images that actually have the most detail and contain the most in my opinion craftsmanship because you mm -hmm. have to spend time creating something like with a bigger image you can be a lot looser so details don't have to be perfect but with a smaller image kind of details have to be crisp otherwise they're going to be very noticeable that they're wrong so mm -hmm. I have every respect to artists who do work on both scales and everything in between because I feel like as an artist, you should always mm -hmm. work in different scales because it makes your work more accessible. Yeah. But um, I definitely feel like people don't really think about like the artist who creates smaller work. Like there's an artist called Jen Open. Her work is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And um, I had the chance to go and see it in Manchester when I was in Manchester. I did walked into a random gallery, it happened to be on the wall. What a, a great experience when you know an artist's work and you look at it in, the, in real life. Wasn't even playing to yeah. so nice, but they're tiny, and I had no idea they were so tiny, mm -hmm. and it kind of made her work even better. So I was like, yeah. "This is so much more skilled to be able to create mm -hmm. this on such a small scale." So it's just like the scale of work is everything. I think it's super important. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Then I but then I also think it depends on if people see the work in person because I think that's also an issue we have with society is that oh, ninety percent of the time people see stuff online. And mm -hmm. like I did with your work, you have no idea of how big that is. You have no idea of the concept. Even through a video, yeah, you see it, but does it register in your mind how big that really is? How mm -hmm. many hours that artist has spent on that piece of work? Yeah. Like, it's, it can, like, actually, and how do you actually, I guess, yeah, how do you kind of make sure that the viewer understands, like, the scale of your work or make sure how much effort goes into creating your work? So, I mean, for me personally, yeah. um, 
especially on an online platform. Um, Instagram is probably my, my main online presence right now because um, it's, it's very easy to just spit content into and maintain a presence and stuff like that, um, which is good and bad. Um, but yeah, having processed videos that are in real time because it's, you know, along along that line of thinking, you know, you can just spit content into this program. People will see it. People will automatically like it. The more they like it, the more people will show up, the more successful, in large air quotes, you are. Um, but it's, it's really, it's really quite frustrating. In an online context, it is doable, but not fun to give people real time videos of how slow you have to work, yeah. how long it takes to draw this one line to describe a leg on a piece of paper. Um, how many times I have to resharpen a pencil just to complete that one line. Um, and that, I feel like when it comes to the, the, the difficulty, the time sink, the, the just the, the personal investment in the, in the creative process, I just cannot find a really good way of presenting that online. You know, you can post YouTube videos, but the thing about art, and maybe because maybe I'm a little old fashioned, but I just feel like you can't consume it properly without seeing something in person. Hmm. So I, I found it's really important to have a physical presence, to do markets every now and then, to do, um, you know, group shows, to hang your stuff in a cafe, because that physical interaction is, the, at least to me, is one of the only ways that a viewer can be as almost as intimate as you were in the process of making it. You were present for this thing to come into existence. Um, and it only makes sense for, you know, somebody that you want to see it and appreciate it, enjoy it, understand it, to actually have a physical interaction of standing in front of it or touching it or, you know, any of that stuff, understanding the textures of the paper. And, um, you know, I just don't know how we can get away from doing that, you know? In a, in a funny way, art is always going to be frustratingly local. Mm. You know, there's a lot of exhibitions I would love to go see, but they're on the other side of the world. They're somewhere in Dusseldorf. I cannot just pick up and go there. Yeah. But but I know that it's not going to be the same as standing in front of that painting. You know, as as looking at it online, it's just. I think I think the physicality is part of the humanity behind it, and. We're never going to get away from that, unless we all decide to be holograms. I don't think it's going to work, though. Um, too many bugs. <laughs> no, I don't um, think so. Yeah. <laughs>
Also, don't forget to check out theflyingfruitbowl.co.uk for daily art inspiration. And if you're a creative, please get in touch for a chance to be featured or interviewed. If you'd like to support the platform further, we also have a Patreon page. Tears start from £1, and more information can be found over at patreon.com forward slash theflyingfruitbowl. Monthly donations are not your thing. We also have PayPal for one-time donations. I'll include a link to our PayPal in the show notes. Once again, thank you very much for listening to the episode today. Until next time, folks, please stay safe.